Hey, nasty women. I'm Samita Mukhopadhyay, and my co-host is Kate Harding, and this is Feminasty. This week, we're talking with Sachi Cole. She's a BuzzFeed writer. She's also an author. And what's her book called, Kate? <laughs> it is called One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. Exactly. She's really funny. She's on Twitter. Um, and we're also ending again with our segment on Hope in the Dark, um, when we're talking about what's giving us hope this week, even when it's hard to find that hope. Kate, how are you? this week oh i'm doing all right i mean i'm a little storm cloud as always but uh i will be able to find some hope at the end i think something that i'm thinking about right now samita because we have been doing a lot of panels and a lot of presentations is the difference between how we talk about diversity and how we actually live it out and i think this goes to i think we'll get to this more in our interview with sachi but i ended up doing an all-white panel for the first time in a long time recently because I generally ask. This was something where it was friends and it all kind of came together ad hoc last minute and I blew it on my usual thing where if somebody comes to me that I don't know and says, do you want to be on a panel? I always say, like, who else is there? And if it's all white people, I'm like, okay, do you need me to recommend some women of color to you because I don't sit on all white panels? And the second I didn't say that to the organizers because they were friends of mine and I just assumed it wasn't going to happen. Boom, I'm on an all-white panel and feeling shitty about it. I used it as an opportunity. It was speaking to a college audience. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm going to address that directly as I'm sitting here. And hopefully a bunch of these white kids who are in the college audience are going to adopt that policy for themselves as they go out into the world. But it was just such a good reminder on how achieving diversity has to be deliberate. You can't expect it to happen by accident. Uh, And what is, how did you address it? Um, I said basically just what I said to you here. I mean, I I told the organizers right when I got there and was like, damn. And and they were, you know, they were people who were completely amenable to it where they felt terrible when they realized. And and hopefully those organizers aren't going to do that again. So I just said to them, okay, you know, I'm going to say something about this and I'm not trying to throw you under the bus or be shitty to people who are hosting me here. But I want to acknowledge that this is something that I usually do and that you know, I'm not going to back out on you at the last second here, but I don't feel good about being on an all white panel. And I don't think anyone should feel good about it. Yeah, good. I mean, there was definitely some moments on the tour where this came up, too. And, you know, the thing that I always think about is Nasty Women, the book is extremely diverse. And we were really intentional about that. But I don't know how intentional we were about it as much as like, that's also our circle. And that's kind of like, that's what I've been thinking about a lot in terms of this question, because I think when people ask me that question, there's this assumption where it's like, well, as a woman of color, why would I put a book together of all white writers? (laughs) Like, like I wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? it kind well, of assumes that like and and it's also and as, as a feminist why right, to do that yeah exactly and and it kind of assumes that diversity it's like it's this conversation that should be happening amongst white people but then it's also you know this assumption that anyone who's putting anything together would automatically like the default would be to lack diversity so when you have it everyone's like oh my god like how'd you do that and it's like no i literally just like we asked our friends you know, and, and it just makes you think about the structural roots right. <laughs> of having diversity. It's really about the circles you run in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people who are organizing panels and stuff, I know this happens in the tech world with men. It happens certainly in social justice spaces or in feminist spaces with white women. 
you know, if you don't have the circles, then it's on you to figure out who you know who does have the circles and to go hat in hand and say, help me find people. And then to also in your regular life, work on expanding your circles and ask yourself why you don't have more women of color in your circles. Yeah, it takes work. It can't just be like, I'm calling up the first three people I think of, and they all happen to be white. And there's, you know, there's no reason for that. I'm not racist. So clearly, I wasn't trying to make it an all white panel. I just called up these three people because they're really great at this. And I know them better than I know this other person. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You have to like, say, goal one is this. And and let me just do the whole thing that like, a lot of white people will then do the devil's advocates and devil's advocate and pretend that well, shouldn't it be about merit? And it's like, well, yeah, but when white people or when men automatically get 100 merit points just for the identity they were born with, then you take those away. Yeah. (laughs) And then suddenly those people of color that maybe you don't know their work as well, so you don't think of them as someone with the same amount of merit, it's like, oh, right, no, if the playing field were level, then I would be thinking of this person first instead of my white friend. Right. I mean, merit, it's like, what are we talking about here? You can't say that in the space of writing when there are so many good, diverse writers. Like, it's not like there's, I I know in other fields, there are major, major pipeline issues. And, you know, you have to be a little bit Mm -hmm. more cognizant, you have to be a little bit more aggressive in your recruitment. Writing is like, hello, the internet has exploded the names and personalities that you could be drawing on. And it's I think it's downright irresponsible Mm -hmm. at this point, if you're talking about anything about the resistance or politics or feminism in Trump's America to not have a diverse panel, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can Google at this point, there are lists of journalists of color, of female journalists of color, of disabled journalists, of Muslim journalists. Everybody is trying to make these resources so that nobody has the excuse to say, we're not going to go out and find these people. But then, of course, the people who claim there's no way that they could go out and find them haven't even thought to Google and find the list. (laughs) Right. Right. So anyway. (laughs) So there's that. But then there's what we talked to Sachi about, which Mm -hmm. is when you finally make it onto one of those lists, which I can relate to as the go to Mm -hmm. person. That's also what you're always expected to write to talk about. So, you know, I mean, a good amount of my writing has been about diversity and has been about you know, my lived experience as a South Asian, but a lot of it actually hasn't been about that, right? And there's a lot of things that I can talk about that don't just have to do with diversity and feminism or, you know, the South Asian American experience. Actually, that's probably the lowest on the list of things that I've written about, yet that's what I'm repeatedly asked to do. So I think we're just at the point where it's time for the next level of diversity, which is that it doesn't matter what your topic is, you should have a diverse panel. Right. I mean, another thing, you know, we talked about at some point, somebody said to us, that there were no, there was no lesbian essay in the anthology. And I was like, well, wait a minute, we've definitely got, you know, it took a second, but it was like, we've got lesbian writers, or we've got queer writers who are currently partnered with women. And it's just that they aren't, the essay isn't, here is what it is to be a lesbian in Trump's America, because that was the other thing about being deliberate about that diversity and especially because they are, we're friends. We're not just going to say, you know, write about this one sliver of your identity. We're going to say, write us an essay on what it means to you to be a feminist in Trump's America right now. And that might mean that, you know, some other identity comes forward or that it's not about 
it's not just a matter of being like, oh, okay, yeah. well, I know Samita, so I've always got somebody to represent the South Asian American voice. I know Kara Balinik, so I've got a lesbian. Like you, right. it, it's about seeing people as writers and as thinkers, and these are the opportunities that are denied to to people of color, especially women of color, because. There are so many systems in place to elevate everybody else before before you start to think of people as thinkers. And then if the only reason you're bringing somebody in is to fill a diversity hole, then you're still not respecting them as a thinker, except maybe on this one issue. Exactly. I've had the same thing happen to me because I started my career writing about fat politics. And it took me forever. Like that, They're still very important to me, but I feel like I literally said just about everything I have to say about fat politics after three years of blogging and half a book and a zillion op-eds. And so, and people still come to me today and like, can you write this about body image? Can you write this about fat? And I'm like, well, I could, but I really just want to be able to write about other things. Exactly. So bring women, bring people of color and don't just objectify them and dehumanize their experience. But on that note, we are... We are excited to have Sachi Cole with us today who will talk about this and so much more. All right, let's talk to her. We are super pleased today to be talking with Sachi Cole, the author of One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter and a culture writer and tweeter who is hilarious and brilliant. Sachi, hi. How's it going? Great. So my first question, I think, is everybody's first question. I would like an update on your dad. Oh, he called the other day because he's upset that my mother is splurging on things like tomatoes. (laughs) So he called to tell me that he is unhappy about those purchases it was specifically because he believes the tomatoes are going to quote the hoi ploy, which which would be because my mother had a dinner party. Oh yeah. Presumably, yes. the only menu item were just bushels of tomatoes, but I I don't know. I'm not Apparently. totally clear. Fancy guest. Yeah, tomatoes. he's so that's his um, uh, gripe du jour. I'd yes. say. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. Thank you yeah. for that. Oh, anytime. Uh, <laughs> no, and for for listeners that may not know why that question is relevant, <laughs> can you can you tell us some more about your dad? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, he figures very prominently uh, in my work and my life because he will not leave me alone. So I feel like I might as well use him to profit. Um, but uh, between every every essay in my book, there's an email from him, and uh, often on the internet I will offer an update on him which is usually just something mundane he's upset about it's shocking how many things make him mad <laughs> like he's such a tiny man and That's he contains <laughs> so much rage Sachi my father also sends me all caps emails or he'll he's not angry as much as like he just will send me these texts or these emails that don't it's like his process of thinking will happen like while he's doing it so like one day he sent me this all caps message that was like you need to come home right now because my keyboard is not working actually we're gonna come get you right now because my keyboard's not working and i need i need my keyboard to work yeah (laughs) and i'm like yeah man they're nuts (laughs) i just want to i just want to like get old and have kids so i can like send emails like that just be like yeah so sachi i i 
I love your writing and, you know, you write a lot about kind of the immigration experience and it's one that I can relate to. My parents are from India, um, but they came to the U.S. in 1970. How do you feel about being asked to write about that or is that something that, like, you propose yourself and is, like, so deeply part of your own experience and, like, what is the general reaction you get from people? I mean, in my day job, I'm not asked to write about that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one good thing is since I'm not a freelancer, I don't get those sorts of requests anymore. But I'm still asked to do panels and to comment on things like that. Often people, I think because I'm in Canada and it's a much smaller space and um, the media industry is a lot smaller, I'm often asked to do these keynotes or to do these panels about diversity in media, um, which is frustrating because like the solution is like, go do it. Like, I I can't talk to you about this anymore because if you're just not going to fucking do it, then there's there's nothing in a keynote or a PowerPoint presentation that's going to make you do it. But in terms of the writing about sort of the immigrant experience, I'm first generation. I was born in Canada, so I have a a slightly it's not it's not really an immigrant story, but Mm -hmm. I think it's more about um, living in between spaces because you never really get to feel comfortable, which is I'm, I'm happy to write about that. That doesn't bother me. If it was the only thing I wrote about, it would probably become tiresome. But my day job is very divorced from that kind of work at this point. Yeah, I know when I started writing, I got asked all the time to kind of write about. And and interestingly, like even for my first book, they, like I was asked to write about immigration when the core of my work had been kind of social and cultural issues in the United States. And I was just like, that's just like a weird pressure and kind of assumption about what I would want to write about. Not that I'm opposed to writing about it, but it's just always been this fine line where I think it's so important that, you know, first generation growing up in that circumstance, like it's, I think it's important to hear our voices, but I feel like there's sometimes this pressure to write in that, like to always have to answer those questions or always have to write about that when you're so much more than that. Yeah, I think it's exhausting. And I think, you know, just because I'm okay with doing that kind of work, it doesn't mean that every brown person who's working yeah in a creative field right now wants to do that and I think that's where it gets frustrating is you know there are people of color who do work that I'm not really interested in Mm -hmm. but I'm going to get asked to do the same thing just because it's easy to paint us with the same brush Mm -hmm. and I mean I think there's also sort of the responsibility of representation is that you feel like okay well if I don't say it then no one's going to say it because they're not going to get somebody else to do it so I got I have to do it and that's really tiresome I remember I got asked to do some like advisory board about something diversity and something and I didn't want to do it because it was unpaid and I'm busy and also selfish so I didn't (laughs) want to do it and I remember uh, somebody I know was like well if you don't do it they're just going to get some white guy to do it and it's like well why is it my fucking job to be the adult here I don't I don't even I don't even know what this is (laughs) but it becomes your job because you know no one else is going to do it yeah, it's like fix your fucking diversity problem because one of your problems is I'm the only person you know to ask every single time. Yeah, and you only know me because I'm really loud. Like, I'm yeah. not even the best option. I just talk a lot. And so you know it's easy to get me to fill an hour, which is a low bar. <laughs> exactly. So I love, you know, all of this is tied up, immigration and family in, in your book, which is amazing. One of the things that really struck me was ta- where you talk about hearing racist things come from your niece, who you call Raisin, who is biracial. And I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about that essay. Yeah, so uh, she's uh, seven now. When I was writing about her, she was about five, five or six. And she's half brown, she's half white, but she's very white passing. She's 
got very fair skin. She, I don't know how this happened. She got blue eyes and curly but thin brown hair. Like it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> she has our eyebrows and our discontent, so we're pretty sure <laughs> we're related. But other than that, so she kind of moves through the world as a white person. Like you wouldn't know, mm. despite the fact that she's got this Hindu first and last name. But because of that, she doesn't yet know the small things that will make her different than an actual white person. She just hasn't put that together. And it's not to say that like I want her to figure that out because it sounds, it doesn't, it's not better. But when she was younger, she used to say things not really realizing who she was talking about. And I, and, and I don't think she came out of the womb racist. Like somebody said something to mm-hmm. her and she picked it up. So oh, yeah. a couple of years ago we were going to India and she just didn't, she didn't want to go. And I remember being younger and I didn't want to go, but I didn't want to go because I knew I was different and I didn't want other kids to know. Right. And I didn't want to go because I didn't like, I had this really narrow understanding of India and I was like, Oh God, they're not going to have like television. <laughs> like this was before, this is before like having Wi-Fi was normal. Yeah. Like we didn't have, I don't even remember, like I was about 10. So, you know, I didn't have like daily access to a computer, but in my head I was like, what am I going to like? you know my friends weren't there it was it was a very childlike sort of thing she didn't want to go because as she told us indians are poor and they smell bad and it was this really strange moment of like like you little tit like you have no (laughs) idea how dumb that sounds coming from your brown mouth right and it was also a tricky period where like if you rebuke her too hard she will react to your aggression by probably saying it again. And if we say nothing, then she thinks this is like a normal, cool thing. And I remember I was so mad at her. It was the Mm. first time I yelled at her. Mm. And I don't think I've ever yelled at her since because that's not really my job as her aunt. I'm sort of there for money and chocolate. Right. But... (laughs) It was sort of, the, it was just the first time where I was like, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to, I'm going to stuff you right back up where you came from. Like if you say that again, but it's also one of those things where I'm like, where did you hear that? Right. Because I like, I don't know if it was at school. Cause she's got, she's also living in a world that I didn't grow up in. Like she now goes to school with all sorts of kids who are different colors and religions. And I didn't, mm-hmm. everyone I went to school with was white. So if I had something racist to say, you know, a white person told me that, yeah. right? <laughs> but like, I don't know where she got it. And I am frankly convinced she heard somebody in the family say it. Oh, wow. And whether that was sort of in a tone of like someone was kidding or it's sort of one of those jokes you make sarcastically or I don't, I don't know. I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm frankly, the uh, real retribution on this would be, I said it at some point and she picked it up and now <laughs> I'm suffering the consequences, but it was this really bizarre thing. And then I became completely obsessed with her having a good time when she went. Even though, to be clear, I had a terrible time on that trip. Like, it was awful. Our entire family went. It was it was weirdly cold because we were going to the north and none of us packed appropriately. It sucked. We were all sick. Like, it was, it was a terrible trip. It was so bad that I remember at one point my uncle went into this into like the storage room he he had and brought out like a tiny sword and gave it to me and was like in case you need it like it was it was so bad it was so bad and we were also like I felt like a child again where like we went on this trip and we were going to this part of India that's still it's a military zone it's still very much um embroiled in conflict Mm -hmm. and so you can't use a phone there unless you buy a local sim card Uh. and I didn't know that 
And so I brought my, I bring my iPhone like a dumb, I'm just, I'm so dumb. Like I should have Googled one thing, <laughs> but I get there and my phone just doesn't work. And the only way for me to get a SIM card is for my, you know, butthole dad to go buy one for me. Cause I don't speak Hindi and I don't speak Kashmiri and he's refusing to, it was just, so it was two weeks. My phone doesn't work. I want to murder everybody. And I got a tiny racist who I'm trying to make sure has a good time. <laughs> I don't know what your question was, but that was the trick. I don't. I, I, I it was the answer I dreamed of. So okay, yeah, good, great. Seriously, I'm like, yeah, lot, a lot of parallels here. Except the first yeah. time I went to India, my parents, we came back, and my brother had typhoid, oh, and so oh he my like, God. yeah, and he survived. He's okay. Um, but he, like, he never went to India again. He was like, yeah, um, I'm not doing that again. Yeah, it's uh, like, a, it, yeah. I don't, it's a weirdly miserable experience. This is yeah. why I get so mad when people are like, oh my God, India's so Eat, pray, beautiful. love. <laughs> All the colors. I had five curries. And then I, like, go blind with rage and I have to leave the room. Yeah, no, I'm... I'm kind of with you on that because it's so not like it's like there's this assumption that we have to embrace everything. You can both be like, don't be racist towards Indians and be like, no, going to India is actually a terrible experience. Yeah. Like, and, how do I like, how do I negotiate that? But it is one of those things where I'm like, well, I can say going there is garbage. Right, You're not right. allowed to say anything. Right. I don't want right. you to enjoy it. Right. Or dislike uh, it. Dislike it. <laughs> Yeah. You're not allowed to have feelings. No, I, I feel That's you. my stance. This is the one thing you can't have feelings about. <laughs> I feel you on that. Yeah. I will say about your cousin, like, I, growing up in the 80s in New York, I was the only Indian kid. And, and for some reason, like, the smelly Indian kid was, like, the number one thing kids tease me about. And I don't know if it's because, like, I actually did smell or if, you know, that's just one of those, like, yeah, Indian people, they smell. You know, that's, like... Yeah, like, I, d- I think it's a combination of the sanitation issues in India, like the very legitimate yeah. sanitation, like the, it's an, it's like an infrastructure joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very nuanced yeah. third graders infrastructure joke. And then the other element of it is like, we make really fragrant food and it gets yeah. into your hair, into your skin. It does like there's, it, yeah. but do I think it smells bad? No, but I'm a grown up yeah. with a grown up's palate. So like right. whenever I go home and I come back, my partner always, he really likes the smell because he says I smell like sandalwood. I don't smell it anymore because mm-hmm. obviously all of the like chili powder my mom has been burning in the kitchen has burned through my nostrils. I have a, I can't smell anything anymore. <laughs> but I do believe it's like a thing. I just don't know if it's a bad thing. But I don't, yeah. I don't again, that's another thing where I'm like, no one's allowed to have a feeling about this other than me. Like I don't yeah. wanna I don't wanna white person being yeah. like, Oh, you smell amazing, just like sandals. Yeah. It's like, get out of my yeah. fucking house. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? That's like when I make a joke about my dad and I use an accent, but too many white people laugh about yeah, it. Yeah, and you're like, like not, for you. You? not yeah, for that, you. Not for you. You know what brown people smell like is Nivea. Nobody talks about that. That's what we all smell like. It's just it's like a like a sixteen yeah. year old tin of Nivea that has somehow yeah. replenished itself without being purchased. <laughs> The truest thing I heard today. Thank you. There you go. I'll let white people laugh at that one. That one's permitted. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, something I've learned, and Kate, perhaps you can you can debunk this myth. But like my experience is that white people don't use Nivea. They, yeah, they don't, and it really makes me. It just fucks me right up because people are always like, "You've got really good skin. What do you do?" And I'm like. I've been using this tin of Nivea my mother gave me in 1997. I've never bought a new one. There's no reason to. Uh, And everyone's like doing these like, 
masks and clay or mm-hmm. some garbage. Or then there are these white girls who are like, what about turmeric? And again, you're like, I'm going to burn your house down. Yeah. <laughs> just get your, get your books, get your pet. I just got to burn your house down real quick. Um, I would say that in my experience, Nivea for white girls is, was very much a 70s uh, thing. Yeah. Like my sister used Nivea when I was little. Yeah. And it's just because white people can never accept that something works and, and just keep, keep using, using it. it. We have yeah. to find a that is your that is culturally your biggest problem. Is yeah. You guys yes. find something that works yes, and you're like, is. yeah, but what if I just stop using it for like 30 years? Right. What <laughs> What yeah. if I found a different thing that doesn't work as well and change yeah. that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yo, but PSA, my mom straight up looks 40. Like she is Brown almost 70. And she looks 40. And I have a, I generally mm-hmm. think like brown women when they're 20 look like crones and then something happens at 40 when they sort of start aging backwards because i do not think this is my best decade i'm really hopeful for 40 yeah it's it's my favorite party trick to tell people how old i actually am but it's also weird like we could i mean that's a we could get into that because i also think people take you less seriously if they think you're younger and i just think they don't there's no models of specifically south asian women aging and part of it is cuz they don't always age but also part of it is you know we don't we don't actually see in the media images of women like my mom doesn't actually look 40 she looks like a 65 year old south asian woman because when i go to india she looks like all my aunts but like we just don't have those kind of visions of older indian women yeah, I was thinking this when they were sort of there. I don't know how to describe this, but there was like a proliferation of models who were over fifty, mm-hmm. and they were all kind of wafy, long, silver-haired white women. And they looked great, and they looked their age, and everyone was really excited. And I was like, you know, some of us are going to age brown and round. Yeah, like it's you're not gonna you're not gonna become sinewy. Yeah, and lean at at sixty-five. Like, it's just not going to happen for you. And it's that's fine. There's no Maybe yeah. there's no realistic interpretation of aging for anybody, frankly. Like, yeah. I'm not going to look like Helen Mirren. I'm going to look like a donut hole that, you know, <laughs> just has these tiny legs and tiny arms, which is fine. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I have trouble believing that. I see. I have seen your pictures, but I... <laughs> well, listen, I'm just saying as I age, I assume it's all just going to melt together. No, no, yeah. It's there there is definitely a melting. Yeah. As someone who like I just got out of a yoga retreat and I was like, where does the boob start and the stomach? Yeah, exactly. Like, no one knows. It's no a one series knows. of lumps. Um But like since we're talking about bodies and beauty, like I have to say one thing I relate to and I know Kate also had brought this up last week when we were talking about about talking to you is body hair. Yeah. This is something my Indian girlfriends and I talk about con- like we can go so deep just talking about even the other day, I was getting my eyebrows done, and the woman offered to like pluck my face, and I was like, "I didn't come oh, here." I love that. For a I face love plucking. that when you go for an eye for like the brows, and she goes lip too, and you're like, "All right, let me yeah. just get the fuck out of here." Yeah. <laughs> and then she like just plucked. At, she's like, "There was just that one that was really annoying me," and I was like, "Well, I mean, I guess thanks, but like, I don't. I've just gotten used to having a mustache, and I, I, it's like one of those things I just have never done anything about, and people very rarely say anything about it. But I've also started growing facial hair, and which I think it's just interesting because like we always talk about like gender nonconformity, and I'm like you should talk to South Asian women who have beards by 50 full beards <laughs> did you just start growing facial hair now no I've been growing it for years like oh, probably okay. mid 20s it started oh I got it at 
at 10. Mm. Like I've, I've been a, I'm just a bushy person. I actually stopped, I stopped going to like a professional for my brows. Cause I was every time she'd be like, wow, this came back real fast. I'm like, yeah, Brenda, just take it yeah. out. Like I didn't ask <laughs> if it was fast. Yeah. I know it's fast. No. And just like the general <laughs> humiliation of, Yes, it's that hairy down there. Like that's why I'm here paying you a hundred dollars to remove it. <laughs> you know, I once had a I had a bikini waxer once tell me that my pubic hair was thin. And I remember like leaving with like my chest puffed out, like, ooh, good for me. I, like as if that's like a compliment. Like what am I like gonna put that on my LinkedIn like has thin pubic hair? Yeah, I remember in college um, and Kate, you'll remember this, like when everyone grew out their leg hair in the 90s again, like it was like mm-hmm. throwback, <laughs> throwback 70s. And a lot of my, like my roommate had this like soft strawberry blonde red hair that would like <laughs> be like bushy. <laughs> it was like bushy on her legs. And I was like, girl, if I grow out my leg hair, like none, nobody in the suite is getting laid for the rest of college. Like it's going to be like, <laughs> oh, like who let a werewolf into college? Like I was like, that's not, and it was like this thing where I was like, this is a privilege. Like I cannot grow out my leg hair. It's the most terrifying shit ever. Well, this is how, sort of when you get that thing with like men and boys who are like, oh, I'm so liberal. I'm totally fine with body hair. And you're like, are you yeah. <laughs> like who, who, whomsters body hair? <laughs> Because I don't think you mean mine, uh, but let's test it out. It's a great litmus test for uh, whether or not we're going to hang out longer. I, I told Samita that, you know, when we were talking about what to talk to, to you about, I was like, this is something that's interesting to me, not as like the white observer, but as a feminist where we talk about body hair in like very specific ways, very often just disavowing the idea that feminists are hairy, but we so rarely talk about it as a body image issue, as something that a lot of women are dealing with and just quietly spending all this time and money on hair removal. And and so, you know, and I, I think yes. that's part of why you wrote the essay, Sachi, about it. And I would really like to see people discussing that a lot more. And, and obviously, it's not just South Asian women either. Yeah. And I mean, I think the tricky part about it is like, I, I make a choice mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. that stuff off of my body. And I... I do it because I'm not a, I'm not yet comfortable enough to leave right. it. Like I I would love if I if I was taking it off because I'm like this is for me. Yeah. It's not for me really, but I do lots yeah. of things that aren't for me. And that's fine. Like I don't re- like I'm never I'm probably not going to get to a point where I don't know. Let's hope I do. Yeah. But uh get to a point where everything is is, is stuff that I just do for yeah. me and no one else. But I just, you know, I'm not there yet. And that's fine. But that isn't really discussed. You sort of get these yeah. two interpretations of a female body hair, which is you have to do this or you're mm-hmm. grotesque, which isn't true. Or if you don't do it, it's a political stance, which is complicated. And so if those are the only two options I have, then I don't really know what to do with that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the idea that it's this personal kind of like, oh, I'm taking a political stance. Like there are actually consequences. Like if I started, like if I legit let my facial hair grow out, people would be like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, oh, oh, 
okay, that, that's, you know, and, and there would be actual consequences for me. And like, you know, and I always grapple with this too, because I still get bikini waxes and I'm almost 40, you know, and I don't have a regular partner. So like, to a certain extent, I do do it for me. But it's also because like, I'm not like, I don't, I don't like the way that looks for me also. And like, perhaps that's internalized shit. But it's also your day to day. Like, it's like, I got to decide. It's like, I'm already like, gonna just embrace being fat. Like, I don't know if like, I, I'm gonna embrace being hairy on top of it. Because like, a big part of my identity is being feminine, you know, even though I know I have a super masculine voice, but (laughs) that is a big part of my, that is a big part of my identity. And like removing my facial hair, it's like, I pretty much shave like every two days. Most people in my life don't know that. And if I didn't, like it would, there, there would like people be like, oh shit, Samita, what's going on? Like it kind of happened. Cause like, there's no, I would just went to Burning Man. Kate knows this and there's no showers there. So I like, (laughs) couldn't really do anything about my facial hair. And like one of my friends who I was there with, she was like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> no, just coming back to the point, not, I mean, we can move off of body hair, but I was just thinking about yeah. that, that picture of a Sikh woman in an airport that was going around yes. probably four or five years ago where it went around first because people were making fun of her, where she had like a full beard because her religion says you don't touch your body hair. And she wrote this wonderful response to all of that that also then went viral about, you know, this is part of my body. God made me this way. I'm not going to, you know, uh, just because you don't like it is not a good reason for me to alter the perfection that is my body, essentially. And it was it was such a lovely response. And like every feminist I know shared it. And I was like, and how many of you hang out with women with full beards? This is yeah. this is the kind of thing. It's like we know what the right thing to say about it is. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we live that out. And I think that is true of so many issues way beyond body hair. Mm. Well, here's to South Asian women that are beautiful werewolves. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, so the only other thing, this is sort of not naturally flowing from what we just discussed, but one of the things that I love about your writing, Sachi, is that you write about very serious subjects with a lot of humor. And we've already seen that in this interview that, you know, talking about things that are actually like deeply emotional and fraught, but you always make amazing jokes about them. And I really respond to that in people's writing and in people in the real world. Are these deliberate choices you make as a writer to try to balance humor and pathos? Or is it just sort of your natural mode because you've always been like that. I don't think about it. I mean, this is just how my brain is built, which is good for some things and really bad for Mm -hmm. other things. So, you know, I am incapable of letting sort of a sincere moment land without also like gently farting (laughs) um, because everything makes me uncomfortable. That's a great instinct for writing. It's bad for funerals and weddings and (laughs) people telling you that they're sick. And, you know, that's not I'm not a great friend for that specific reason. (laughs) I think my editors were really great because they understood how to control me, because if it were my choice, every sentence would end with like a rim shot. Because I'm not actually very comfortable dealing with that. And this is why I'm like such a wreck in interviews because they're like, oh, you're so sensitive. And you're like, (laughs) so it's not it's I guess it's intentional only because obviously I'm making jokes because something's making me uncomfortable. It's important to address the things that make you uncomfortable. But, you know, I rely a lot on editors for that because it's also really easy for me to run away. Well, We have one question that we ask every guest. Okay. Samita, do you want to ask it? Yes, absolutely. Sachi, what makes you a nasty woman? 
Oh my god. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm sure there's like a really good like saucy answer, but all I can think is like, oh, I'm like a bad person. Let me think of like how I'm a bad person. Oh, oh. Come on, you guys. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh. Pull it together. <laughs> yeah, I think you're terrible. Thank you. <laughs> that's all I wanted you to say. Yes, yeah. I think that's basically what we yeah. were getting at. We got the exclusive interview where Sachi Cole admits she is just a bad As person. As I slowly cart myself to jail. I don't know. I'm sure, you know, I don't, I think it depends on who you ask. I'm sure if you ask like any Caucasian man named John or Steve or Greg or yeah. whatever white name is on Vogue right now. I'm, I'm, you know, too loud and too aggressive and I talk about my butthole too much and I'm mean and demanding and selfish, which is all true. But I think if you ask somebody else, probably a brown lady, they'd be like, yeah, cool. So I think it just depends on what you ask. Word. Well, and I think all of those are actually the reasons that we love your writing and we were excited to talk to you today. So I think that's a fairly good oh, answer. Oh, thank you. Please call a John yeah. and ask a John why I, I'm terrible. I haven't internalized it enough, so I can't tell you. Good. Because fuck John. Yeah. That's that's what we're all about on this podcast is fuck John. You know, there was once this Canadian um, journalist who he was trying to defend me and it really became a part of my brand. He made a huge mistake. But he was trying to defend me in some tweet and he called me an utter pill. And I have, I like, I know it's dumb and I don't know. I know it's bad to like hold on to it, mm-hmm. but I, I'm putting that on my fucking tombstone because <laughs> it was just such a dumb, like it's such a dumb old insult, first yes. of all. And second, that was him defending me. Right. <laughs> the full tweet was like, I blocked Sachi a long time ago because I think she's an utter pill. But like, mm-hmm. you know, people need to lay off or whatever. Right. And I'm like, that's your, that's your big defense tweet. That's is that you like, got. you blocked me because you think I'm annoying. Right. She's just anyway. annoying, not evil. It was great. I like, I tried, I tried to get the publisher to put it on the back of the book as a blurb. And they said no. Yeah. And I swear to God, they were like, no, he's not famous enough. Oh I was my like, God. oh, sorry. <laughs> let me try to, let me try to get somebody else to say that. The ultimate drag, the ultimate drag. <laughs> Like yes. you're literally not, your opinion does not matter. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. good? It's so good. Yeah. The authority it literally could not matter. Right. And I like I like that the publisher yeah. um, was like, not because it's not like it wouldn't be a great thing to put on your book. It's that the person who said it is absolutely irrelevant. No, he's just not like they don't we don't know who he is. They That's used amazing. it for the press material. So if you like Picketer made these bookmarks that had the quote on it, but then the best part is they just blanked his name out because they're like, Who cares? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he knows. I should probably send him a box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. This was great. And I think we could go on for anytime. Thanks yeah. for having me. It was so fun. Before we end for today, we always want to leave you all on a hopeful note. So we're going to talk again about what gives us hope in the dark. Uh, Samita, what's giving me hope this week is just the memories. Our book tour is finally over. We have done all of our scheduled events and gone to uh, at least a dozen cities, I think, and spoken to mostly women, but people coming out to, to talk to us about feminism and about resistance and about what do we do now and seeing seeing those audiences was so delightful for us as as writers and editors of this project nasty women but also just so hopeful for us as people 
who are have been struggling for the last year with the reality of President Trump, which are still words I kind of shudder to say, and seeing hundreds of people come out ready to talk about this, fired up, ready to fight, that definitely gave me a lot of hope. And I am excited to be done with book tour because I really need to sleep for a while. But I also I'm going to miss the energy of going out and meeting all those people who are just as invested in the work. Yeah, absolutely. And part of what motivated this segment and for us to really be talking about this is that we would sit in these rooms with hundreds of women and someone would invariably ask some version of the question, what gives you hope? And almost every time we'd look around the room and be like, you do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's what gives us hope. It's you guys. We're going to send you out listening to a few uh, of the voice memos that people have sent us so far. And we would love to hear more of these. Please keep sending them to feminasty at com. Please keep listening, rating, subscribing, telling your friends about us. And remember, stay nasty. My name is Terry, and I'm a nasty woman because I like to drink and I like to cuss and I like to think for myself and I like to do whatever the fuck I want. And I'm pretty sure that those things are going to be made capital crimes any day now. So I wanted to thank you guys for doing the podcast and the book. I think it's important to have strong voices out there representing uh, nasty women everywhere. So thanks.